Hey, and welcome to this new episode of uh, the State of the Net podcast. I'm Paolo Valdemarin. And I'm Ewan Semple. And you can tell it's a sunny day because Paolo started the podcast going, hey. <laughs> yes, it's one of the last sunny days of this year, probably. <laughs> but I'm enjoying it very much. So just before we started, we always we always do this, don't we? Just before we started... Um, Paolo was telling me about about a couple of articles that we thought we could use as the basis for our podcast today. Do you want to just catch everybody else up with that, those two ideas, Paolo? Oh, we're going to post the links of the two articles in the notes. Uh, uh, The first one that I found this morning is uh, Lawrence Lessig uh, titled Podcasting and the Slow Democracy Movement. And uh, I found it interesting to read this on the day I was about to record the podcast. So the basic premise of the article is that uh, the we're coming out of a Twitter period. He says the 2016 elections were the Twitter election, where everything is very quick and very short and very orientated to you know, an advertising rhythm where you just want to catch the attention of people and move to the next things. And we're moving towards a, a podcast period where everything is slower and more thoughtful because uh, if you do a podcast, it takes more time and it takes more time to do it. It takes more time to listen to it. Uh, and uh, if it's slower, it's better. It's interesting because in, in- in that article, he linked to Joe Rogan's podcast, which I, I enjoy mostly, not all of them. And uh, Joe Rogan has talked on occasion about that slow nature. I mean, his podcasts can be anything up to three hours long. And I never thought I would listen to that length of stuff on, on any medium, never mind the internet. Um, and it's funny, though, because just you mentioning about, ad- or the article mentioning advertising, he starts with must be about four or five minutes worth of ads. And it's funny because I've learned on my podcast player that if I hit the 30-second fast-forward button five or six times, I'll pretty much hit the start of the podcast. So it's funny how even in that long form, you know, the need to fund it through advertising still persists, but in a way it's, it's kind of easier to dodge. It's not in my face all the time. Yeah, I think that I, I wonder if advertiser had figured that out yet. <laughs> I um, shouldn't have said that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, well, if, you know, whenever we will be looking for advertisers for our own podcast, uh, <laughs> let's make sure we remove this episode from the right. We're sorry. It was lost. No, we will, um, ne- but, we will never. Can I make a public commitment now, Paolo? We will never have advertisers on this podcast. Well, you know, everybody has a price. Never say never. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, we might become, once we have several million listeners, you know, maybe there is. No, no. No? All right. <laughs> I'll find somebody else to do <laughs> That is when we will split and I will That's go right. commercial. No, I do. I, I do the same. I mean, I, I don't. I do not listen to very long podcasts, to be honest. I mean, I, I 
I guess that I, I can get to 40, 50 minutes if it's very interesting, but then I, I can't really stay there for, for longer in terms of attention. I mean, I get bored, I guess, after a while, and, uh, unless it's something very, very good. Because you're that younger soundbite generation, Paolo. That's, that's maybe the difference. Yeah, but way <laughs> younger. But, it, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because... You know, it's not all podcasts that I would <coughs> listen to for that length of time. Um, but a great, great bit of news over the weekend that Russell Brand's podcasts are starting up again uh, with a whole new series of sounding like great, great speakers. Um, and the first one's coming out this week. And I, you, know, you can probably tell I'm genuinely excited. You know, I'm really looking forward to it. And the reason is that I love the chance. And it's not that long. You know, there may be an hour, an hour and a half sometimes. But the chance to hear people thinking hard about stuff. Um, I can hear people at home saying, yeah, unlike this podcast. But, <laughs> um, but you know, that's what I relish is, is that opportunity. And it's funny, I was talking to, uh, I was in meeting a friend, BBC colleague the other day there, and we were talking about the role of public service broadcasters like the BBC in the future and funding, you know, and going back to the advertising thing, whether the license fee is still an appropriate method for making, you know, getting money in to make programmes and how successful subscription has been in the form of Netflix. And, you know, I think we maybe touched on this in the podcast before, but just I think people's appetite for quality is is beginning to reassert itself, and that's possibly part of what's being observed on by, by Larry Lessig, that, you know, you get tired of being the product you get tired of being shouted at um, and eventually you want to benefit from the stuff you're consuming and will pay a little bit extra to, to do so. Well, one would hope... I, I guess that the, the real challenge is uh, we are just moving groups of people from one part of the media spectrum to the other and... Uh, the real question is how many were moving in the sense that I don't think that I ever was particularly interested uh, in the clickbaity type of media. But uh, mm. there is a very large group of people out there who are slaves to this system. So, yes, people are moving. Podcasts are becoming finally, if you want, popular and uh, or at least this what seems to be happening and it's good because it means that you know we have more people with it means that some people are moving away from the 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 streams that are the, the mind controlling streams but uh, how many i mean there will always there will still be people in in every part of the spectrum so i guess the question is uh, how many are moving and unfortunately in a democracy is a matter of numbers so when hmm. he says that when yeah. he called this a slow democracy movement i'm happy that there is some people moving i wonder if we're talking about a majority well and it's interesting you know that that reference to slow movement i'm doing a talk next month and next week rather in canada and I actually took a screenshot of the cover of Larry Lessig's book Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace and in doing so it clocked the fact that it's 18 years since I read that book and so for 18 years some of us have been aware of the issues of 
data and algorithms on our perceptions of democracy. And uh, the other link you, you were mentioning, Paolo, was the one from uh, um, Joy Ito. Could you just touch on that one again for Yeah, well, there is a, he wrote an article for Wired, and uh, it's, uh, it's titled The Next uh, Great Digital Extinction, and it uh, starts by describing this event that happened on the planet two or three billion years ago created a great oxidation event when uh, basically all the forms of life that existed before oxygen had to find refuge at the bottom of the oceans or 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 die out once uh, oxygen became common on the planet and of course oxygen enabled a whole new type of life and he is uh, basically drawing a parallel with the digital revolution and how this is actually forcing on the bottom of the ocean uh, what came before but he's also talking about the digital the, the how the digital revolution started uh, in the early 90s in in silicon valley and uh, and how i guess the most interesting part of the article is how he was part of it, but you know it's it's it actually he was and it was an interesting period. Um, and he kind of finishes saying that uh, the hippies that that started the, re- the revolution are leaving room for the new generation of uh, warm-blooded mammals that will do much better with these tools than what the hippie generation did. In a way, he's saying the first digital generation somehow failed to obtain the revolution, but it did create the environment for the next uh, thing to 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 appear. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because you know, I was thinking this, you know, game of, I, you know, I refer to him as Larry Lessig as if he was my mate, but I have met him a few times, and it is that feeling of having been in, you know, eighteen, seventeen, eighteen years ago, at that I guess second wave of the whole internet thing, you know. Joy was part of the first wave, and then the second wave was the Web 2.0 thing, which got horribly turned into social media and all that came with it. But, you know, the, you were part of that as well. And, and we, we knew most of the people who were active and involved in shaping it. And, you know, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's deeply unattractive to other people to keep banging on about that. But it's interesting. I was just trying to think what the next wave looks like and who, who are shaping that, what sort of... Ethics, you know, you were talking before we started about the fact that some of the uh, the people on the well were um, libertarians, you know, and in some ways quite right wing in their views. Um, and I just find it interesting at the moment to sense, get a sense of where the next iteration has come from. And I guess it's in the blockchain stuff, which I get, and, and the decentralization of the web that Tim Berners Lee is talking about. So you know, some of the some of the hippies haven't given up yet. Well, I think that what is interesting is that uh, there is a combination of uh, passion for the new things, and of uh, but at the same time there is a lot of responsibility of uh, humans of uh, you know why they are doing what they're doing. It's probably almost most imp- more important than the underlying layer of technology. So yeah. you know whether it is HTTP or the blockchain. It's uh, why people, are, wh- why they are doing this is uh, is uh, probably 
more important and uh, the motivation you know the ideals that there are behind a lot of these movements are interesting there, there is a, a podcast i heard this week an interview with a journalist uh, that wrote a very long profile uh, of facebook and of zuckerberg in particular he, who had unprecedented access to, to zuckerberg and uh, and tells a little bit of the story of Facebook and how they ended up being this uh, probably not so happy period, and they say he described how at some point Facebook became completely driven by growth. Uh, they would do everything and anything to grow. Uh, they they got to this point because at some point they hit a ceiling, and uh, I think it was like at fifty million users they couldn't for some moments it couldn't grow and they started saying okay we're going to do anything the most important thing is growing we'll do anything to grow so gro- growing in terms of numbers rather than growth in terms money of numbers yeah. no no yeah. Gro- growth in terms of we want more user we want more users more engagement more right. user more engagement more user more engagement and uh, the problem is that this led them to make facebook addictive Mm-hmm. Um, they basically, at some point, they realized that they could build into the platform some solutions that were designed to be addictive and that this would actually help them to grow. Mm-hmm. And uh, and at some point, they thought that you know it doesn't matter. If we grow, everything will be all right. Uh, if people... When people are pushing back, is because they don't understand yet. They don't understand what we're doing. What we're doing is unique, and they, they uh, don't get it. Yeah, and they <laughs> don't get it. And uh, and I think they were sincere, having as they you know as sincere kind of almost teenager who run a multi-billion dollars company be, and <laughs> uh, they ended up being in this place. And uh, man, did you see the new? product I just introduced yesterday, the portals. No. So Facebook just introduced two new products, which are basically a standing screen with a camera on top that you can use to talk to your friends. Uh, It's like a, you know, video conferencing thing. And it comes with Alexa. And... uh, No. And I was thinking, and (laughs) I was thinking... And I was thinking, look, I actually totally see the use for this product. I mean, yeah. when I'm I, I, when I'm home, I call my wife, who you know lives in Italy, and we kind of leave this uh, open uh, video call on, and we, you know, I move around the kitchen, she moves around the kitchen, is as if we were in the same room. If I had a better technology to do this, I would probably buy it. But not from Facebook. I mean, <laughs> or, or Amazon. The combination of the two is just—you know—you exactly. might as well just open your veins and bleed data into their coffers. You know, I mean, it's just geez. exactly. I mean, having an always-on product that <laughs> listens to everything you do, and also the way they frame it—they say, "Oh, we will never listen to your conversation." Yeah, right. He, he. Well, the thing is, he didn't see say we cannot listen to your conversation. You know, well, that, that's like the, the Home Secretary many years ago saying that law-abiding citizens in the UK have nothing to fear from GCHQ. I wasn't worried until he said that. 
Yeah, well, that 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 is pretty much the. He yeah. basically said, "Oh, it's, it, he didn't say anyway. He did not say he they cannot listen it to it. They just said they will not. They'll try really to hard not to. <laughs> yeah. They say, okay, okay, and and the funniest thing of all is that uh, the camera lens. If you want to protect your privacy, there is a clip-on plastic thing that you can put <laughs> over the camera lens. That is. I mean, I'm sorry, but it really feels like an afterthought. Like you know, but it comes they, with they a free roll of gaffer tape. It's 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 yeah, exactly. It's it's not something. It's not even part of the box. It is a piece that is a piece of plastic that most people would lose within 20 minutes from installing the thing. And uh, I mean, uh, I brave, appreciate brave that the new world was right, wasn't it? Really, uh, I mean, no, we're doing I this mean, voluntarily. I, they they must have been working on this product for a while, and I almost feel sorry for them because I I do I do appreciate that probably they don't think it's going to be very successful either. But uh, you know, because it's interesting because when you were leading up to the story, given the background and the conversation we've had thus far, I stupidly thought they were maybe doing something responsible and grown up. Wrong. Yeah, that's not yet. I mean, the next thing that you're going to do is responsible grown up yeah. with this thing. I mean, I guess that they, this is my, the, the last brain fart they had in the pipeline before becoming responsible. So, you know, it's, it's interesting because, again, anticipating this thing next week, you know, I'm going to try and tread the line between being still, despite everything, an enthusiast for technology. And I love the fact that, you know, that my watch is clever enough to know that if I've been walking for 10 minutes without a break, the chances are I'm on a walking workout and pops up and asks me to confirm that and then back times the walking exercise to when I actually started. I mean, that is so clever and so cool. And I can cope with that because I still believe that Apple don't actually make any use commercially of my data because they've made such a big thing of that and that's one of their USPs. Um, so I think, But I think it's that thing about being aware of the issues, being thoughtful about the issues. And, you know, the pitch I'm going to make to these people in Canada is that if enough of us think hard enough and enough of us use the social tools that we have at our disposal to talk about the consequences of some of this stuff, to keep up to speed and learn about it and make better informed judgments, it might turn out all right. But if we just all blindly tip ourselves over the edge of that cliff into this, you know, mass data dystopian future, then it could be really ugly, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 all about how big it is going to become. I mean, it's uh, we we have these amazing tools, and they're truly making people superhumans if only people are willing to embrace this. Uh, at the same time, I I I bought a I bought a second um, Apple TV for our house in Italy, and mm-hmm. I I plugged it in. And I installed the basic apps, and uh, I didn't want to log in with my own account on the YouTube uh, app. And wait, now waiting for Monica to do that. So, but I started the app anyway, and I kind of had a glance at YouTube. What people watch on YouTube if you're not logged in? I mean, what is what the public thing? What is popular on on YouTube? Because oh, no. if you ask me, I mean, if you ask me, YouTube is all about airplanes. Rock music all the way to 73, uh, cars and uh, weird tools to cut 
foods and metals. I mean, that's my image of YouTube. Now, it turns out that they might be slightly personalized, but because actually what is mainstream of YouTube is absolutely crazy. I mean, it's the same type of stupid content that I think is on TV. I didn't watch so TV, but, you know. That's, that's interesting, because I, for many years now, have... I don't have a... Uh, well, I have a Google account only so that I can access Google Docs that people send me, pretty much. And the occasions when I do want to specifically watch uh, something on YouTube, and there's a particular combination that it's still worth me having the, the account for. But I don't... I'm, ne I'm really almost... I'm only logged into it for the, point, for the time that I need to do those things. So still, Google knows really quite a, very little about me. I mean, I never tracked my history on the browser. Um, even with Facebook, I come out of Facebook when I've stopped using it, uh, if I'm in a browser. Um, in fact, I've just taken all the social media tools off my phone. Um, and the only things on my phone are tools that allow me to read books or write. Um, which isn't me sort of being joining in the paranoid we're all victims of technology thing because I still enjoy Facebook and I'll still go into Facebook and log in for the time that I'm doing it. But they they find out very little about me. Um, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm paranoid, but I, I it it also increases my kind of the quality of my experience of the thing to some extent as well because. Um, well, does it? I mean, well, in, in a sense, I mean, okay. Uh, in, in in a sense, one might argue that. Uh, you know how you always complain about the fact that you get weird ads on Facebook? Uh -huh. Well, that's because you don't allow them to know you. Uh, and uh, one might argue that getting advertising that is uh, more related to your sphere of interest is better than getting advertising for stuff that you don't care about. But that's why so, I feel that actually it makes it easier to ignore the advertising. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a pretty good point. I'm not, I'm I mean, not so I, drawn into it by going, oh, look, oh, look, I have to have one of those things. I mean, there's a bit of it. I mean, to be fair, you know, I'm not completely snow, snow white on this. I mean, I I do get advertised with stuff for climbing hills and things and notebooks, lots of notebooks. But so, they're, you know, they're not completely unaware of me. But in a sense, I've, I've managed what they get to know about me in a way. So I only ever click on things that I'm genuinely really interested in, for instance. Oh, but it's true. I mean, to, to, I mean, in the in the case of YouTube, I might say that I, I like YouTube. I mean, I, I like the way YouTube is is showing me stuff that uh, I like, and uh, is not showing me stuff that probably everybody else is like. So it's it's interesting. I I do I I keep to for example, I've been running Facebook in a different browser. I I yeah. um, there is a plugin that uh, I, it might actually be created by uh, Firefox people themselves you can basically run on Firefox you can run um, Facebook in a sandbox so yep. basically f Facebook is running in a tab and you can't do, you can't do anything but running a tab so I don't care about Facebook I mean I don't want Facebook to be to know on what other sites I go so I'm not keeping Safari which is my main browser blocked on Facebook and I have removed all the cookies yeah. but uh, and I but and, and more in general I don't like trackers I mean yeah. forget Facebook and, and Google there are 
tens of other trackers which are harder to stop and I actually fight them in everywhere yeah. I can. Um, but see, it's interesting because that, again, that conversation I had with my former BBC colleague who's, who's still there, and he, part of the conversation was about the importance to them of getting personalization right. And at the time, I sort of felt slightly uncomfortable with the way the conversation was going. And then I come home and my wife Penny goes to use iPlayer and it now insists that you create a login. And I thought, you know, this is this, you know, because part of the remit of public service broadcasting, albeit patronising, was to give people what was good for them, you know, to know what was good for them. Um, and if we all just end up, I mean, that is the concern about echo chambers, isn't it? If we all end up in personalised niches that don't stretch what we know, but and I'm falling back into trap of being victims again, because it's up to us. If we don't like being in a niche, we can always do something about coming out of it. Well, I think, so uh, one of the companies I'm working with right now um, is uh, thinking about uh, an AI development, uh, basically machine learning development, uh, and it is around content uh, and personalization. And one of the core ideas that we have been developing is uh, to create a a sort of a manifesto where we basically say everything we will do with data, we will tell you about. So, yes, we want to do this. We want to personalize your experience because we do think that the personalized experience uh, is going to be better because uh, our aim is to inform you in five minutes and if i can give you what is better or more relevant and more interesting for you in those five minutes you get the better you you are informed better so personalizing is good but what i don't want to do is do this behind your back I I want to be able to collect as much information from you as I can because this information, which is not personal information, but, you know, the more I learn about what you like and what you prefer, the better I will be able to inform you. On the other hand, I also have professional journalists who will be making decisions for you. There will always be a journalist deciding what is most important and if a new, if i don't care if you don't care about sports if this is an important information because you live in this society i will tell it to you anyway yep. so f- striking the balance there is is hard and i think that uh, being transparent about it and being able to share the you know your discoveries and your approach and collect feedback from users is is important and it could be you know it could be it's a win-win solution for everybody so it's not about there's nothing wrong with personalization is how you do it well i was just checking out an article i remember there that david weinberger wrote for wired which the title was don't make ai artificially stupid in the name of transparency and it's because we could put this in the show notes, and it's the thing about what the cost, if you like, of complete transparency is, um, and the complexity of what's being made apparent to whom and and with what consequence. But it, it, you know, in terms of just, I think it's about it's a, it's almost about intent, isn't it? You know, if you can state your intentions. For the system, the detail, I mean, I think I'm trying to remember the article's detail, but I think it was around the fact that 
it's complicated. If you try to get too many people involved in making decisions about the complicated stuff, it starts to become impossible and it stops working and blah, blah, blah. And I get his point totally, but equally, one needs to have some sense of what the purpose is of, of, of what, what the data has been done, what the purpose of the data being collected is. Um, so even if that's a broad level of intent, we need a better way, I guess, of holding people to account. Yeah, I, I, I suppose that there will emerge a new, probably a new generation of uh, contracts between readers and uh, providers of services, between customers and providers of service, where you will not be, they, they will not be so unbalanced. You know, yeah. you'll be able to say, okay, let's play this game together. I mean, even... And I'm not expecting Facebook or any of the big ones to change significantly. But, you know, even with Facebook, I actually feel that I'm getting a fair deal with Facebook. You know, I mean, I enjoy Facebook. I, I use it to keep track of my friends and my family. I'm sharing some stuff on Facebook. I know that I give yeah. them some stuff. I know that they are trying to push stuff to me that I might or might not buy or read sooner or later. Yeah. You know, I appreciate that if I tell them a little bit more about me, they can give me a little bit more advice. To a certain degree, I'm willing to do that. But uh, that's about it. I mean, I, I'm, I know what the deal is. Yes. But uh, I never really negotiated this deal. And I think that the vast majority of users do not have this deal. The well, vast majority know- of users... You know what the deal is until something like Cambridge Analytica happens or what worries me most is that what seems like a fair deal or innocuous data in the constrained context of Facebook, suddenly the machine learning or the AI starts to put two and two together in a different system, different database and begins to do social profiling and stuff that begins to you know, use... And this, 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 this happens. The, the, the advertiser's data is used to make, make judgments about your employability or the, the you know, the more constraints on the credit rating stuff nowadays. But, um, you know, the, law, the laws need to keep up with the fact that people can make use of this data to make some quite pernicious decisions about us, even if the means of collection feels relatively benign. Yeah. I mean, from this point of view, I think that there was uh, that uh, Facebook did something, behaved quite well, uh, when they revealed that big data breach they had, and they did it very, very quickly yes. because of GDPR. Uh, but the fact that Facebook actually did respect GDPR regulations, the point that they went public with something, even without knowing exactly what it was, but they were forced to go public, and they did, uh, I think that... Uh, yes, that was a good, I mean, a good sign, yeah. Uh, compared to Google, who basically announced a data breach yesterday that they had kind of been aware since 2015 and yeah. uh, and uh, is uh, impacting um, Google Plus users, all 19 of them. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> well, they're still there. But, but, but that thing about, it's interesting because there was a story recently about some tiny, you know, size of the head of a pencil chip that uh, the Chinese had managed to get onto... Um, I think it was the motherboards yeah. or processors for, for, for servers. And, you know, the Bloomberg report, and this is a real challenge for journalists, which I don't think that many of them are up to, had sort of inflated the story. 
And it left people like Google and, and Apple coming back saying, well, no, actually, we did know about this, and it was in this constrained set of circumstances, and the consequences were much less drastic than you're trying to make out, and yes, there was a problem, but we dealt with it sort of thing. And, of course, that rambling misinformation around tech and the consequences of it, because, you know, let's face it, but you know, bad news sells newspapers, and they're going to jump on anything that they think is a good story. Um, well, and if you happen to, to if the current uh, administration happened to be imposing trade limit on China, that story plays right in There's a whole right bunch of reasons, hand. yeah. And anybody can get Apple in their headlines are going to just hit the, hit the jackpot sort of thing at the moment. So, yeah. Um, well, the crazy thing about that story is that, I mean, pretty immediately the reaction that I had been reading about the story I mean, to to say the least, uh, it's uh, exaggerated. Yeah. Uh, I today I read a post of one of the few people that are mentioned in that uh, in that story, mm-hmm. who is a, a security researcher, and is basically saying what they wrote in the story is a number of hypotheses that I gave them, like example of crazy stuff that is extremely unlikely to happen. Uh, and apparently they turned this into a story. Yeah. So, again, what is interesting is that I was able to hear from the voice of somebody mentioned in the article saying, hey, no, wait a second, that's not <laughs> yeah. what I said. But sort of leads us um, dub- doubling back to podcasts. In the sense that, you know, I... I, I actually think that he said this in a podcast. Right, so, so that's it. So, I mean, I, I increasingly, not that I get asked that often these days, but... You know, if I get asked to sort of uh, comment on something by a journalist, I almost always say no, unless I know them. And even when I've known them, sometimes I've got burned because they've had a story they wanted to tell and I was just, you know, cannon fodder for that story. And, of course, in before... OK, blogs are less potent than they used to be, but certainly before blogs and podcasts, you didn't have the means of uh, redress in that situation. So, you know, and I know people worry about the truth and who's telling the truth and... Shouldn't I respect some and trust some institution that's been supposedly telling me the truth for the last fifty years, as opposed to some guy in a podcast? Mm, maybe, <laughs> you know, it, it depends. All right, I think this is a pretty good way to wrap up this uh, very reckon. thoughtful episode. <laughs> I reckon we did our best, Pablo. Yeah, well, one tries, right? Yeah, I thought we were both trying. <laughs> uh, thanks from both of us for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Goodbye.